Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union label. To secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. I am John Hayward, a wandering perfidious pundit who has drifted in here to sit at the desk while Alan is on assignment today. I'm the Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. Here on the Alan Nathan Show, we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. There's an interesting poll that came out from the Wall Street Journal over the weekend that had a, a lot of buzz among the commentariat. It's, it's a really kind of depressing, I guess, uh, poll. Some people quibbled over its methodology. But basically, this is a poll the Wall Street Journal does every year. They've been doing it for a long time. And they're tracking how people are supportive of various core American values. They basically say, what do you think about marriage and family, hard work, uh, having children, that, that sort of thing. You know, they, they Religion, how, how do you feel about religion? religion. So they've been doing this every year. And according to the Wall Street Journal's report of their own poll, this last year was one of the steepest drops they've ever seen in pretty much everything. So, I mean, pretty much everything that defines American life in a traditional sense is on the outs, is, is sliding down in terms of public support. And one of the quibbles that was then raised to this poll, one of the points made against it, is that the methodology was a little imperfect because a lot of the drop that they're talking about is between people who used to rate those values as very important, and now they rate them as mostly important or moderately important. So it wasn't really that they were completely turning their back and saying to heck with all of this stuff, it was more like a slide at the top end between people who highly value all of these core American values. Uh, some of the headliners were patriotism, which uh, in 1998, 70% of the respondents to this poll back when they started this thing uh, said patriotism was very important. Now it's down to 38% in 2023. And it was 61% before the pandemic, you know, as recently as 2019. Uh, religion went from 62% to 39%. Having children uh, in 98, 59% of respondents thought that was very important. Now it's 30%. And then uh, even community involvement. Now, you would think community involvement would be constantly popular because the left pushes this in its own version of it all the time. And so do people on the right in different ways. They're always telling everybody that it's very important to be involved in their community. And yet that's in the, in the toilet, too. That's down to 27% from an all-time high a couple of years ago. So what's going on here? It, it is a slide, again, primarily in people who rate these things as very important. They aren't really now saying they're not important at all. They're just saying less important, you know, and I have a, a twist of, of my own on this. I've seen people argue over what all this means. The obvious inference that you might take is that a lot of these numbers were rocked by the pandemic and by the arguments we had with each other and the loss of faith in authorities. 
that occurred after the pandemic. See, the authorities don't really want to admit this. And by authorities, I mean everybody, everybody that claims some expertise. You have the scientific community, which has been highly politicized. You have the government itself. You have the media, which very much sees itself as a player, maybe the most important player in all of these things. All of these institutions have suffered catastrophic losses of confidence uh, over the last really decade, 15, 20 years. But during the pandemic, it was it was really pronounced. I mean, everybody came out of the pandemic suspicious, paranoid, convinced that everybody's lying to them and, and not without reason that, you know, that nobody's being honest with them. So when you emerge from something like that, well, yeah, patriotism would slide, right? Because what are people really being patriotic about? What are they saying they, they belong to here? If they've lost faith in all of the institutions and in the government and all the power players in their country, then what patriotic sentiment are they really feeling? So maybe this flagging patriotism importance is a way of generally saying that people are, are just not enthused about where the country is at right now. And you could say the same about many of these other sliding indicators. I think what this poll is really telling us, you know, the, the thing I draw away from it is that the respondents believe that all of these things are not important to, to other people. See, I think when you respond to a poll like this and the poll says, how important do you think having children is, for example? Well, if you're a average young to middle-aged person nowadays, you've been told your whole life that having children is wrong. It's not only not important, it's, it's kind of evil. You're, you're bringing more kids into this overcrowded, dying earth, this global warming world that's it's overcrowded and it's going to collapse any minute now. How can you bring more children into a world like this? If you talk to young people today, come at college age, high school age, you will get that answer from a great many of them. If you ask them about whether they plan to have children or whether they're going to start young and get married and have children. Oh my God, no. How could you do that? The world is overcrowded. There's global warming. There's climate change. How can I bring more people into this world? Humanity is a virus they've been told. So they've been getting clobbered with this message for decades now, but especially over the past decade. And then after the pandemic, you know, ever the more so. But that doesn't necessarily mean the message really took root in their souls. What I think you're seeing here is that people know that these are the, the values or rather the loss of values by the culture around them. They've been told that everybody else thinks having children is a sin because the world is overcrowded and dying and we all have giant carbon footprints and we need to knock it off. They don't necessarily 100% internalize that belief or accept it themselves, but they think everybody else does. So when a pollster comes along and says, how important do you think having children is? They immediately regurgitate the cultural message that's been imprinted on them. That's not important at all. In fact, you're not supposed to have children. We've got to bring the population down. When, when in truth, demographic collapse is killing every industrialized country in the world, including us. We're not going to be the first ones to get to absolute disaster. That's a neck and neck race between China and Japan right now. But we're going to get there. We're going to get to the point where falling demographics is going to make it very difficult to sustain social programs for older people. And that that's going to be a real problem in the years to come. But that's not what anybody's thinking. They've just been told the earth is overcrowded, don't have children. And likewise with patriotism, they've been told that patriotism is jingoism, is, is dumb and stupid, and they should be citizens of the world and nationalism is evil. So maybe in their heart of hearts, they may still feel some pride at being America or some investment in the American project, but they answer the pollster because they think everybody else will laugh at them if they say they think patriotism is important. You're not supposed to say that. Likewise with religion. And then the one thing that has been increasing in importance, like pretty much the only major factor in this poll that showed up higher in the poll in 23 was money. 
money used to be super important to 31% of the population in 1998. Now it's up to 43, which is a, a modest but still a significant increase. And that shouldn't surprise anybody. You know, you might scratch your head and say all the messaging is anti-consumerism. Yeah, but people understand now that having money in your pocket is a real thing. When you have money, you have choices, you have options. And coming out of the pandemic, when a lot of people were scared to death about their jobs, about whether they could afford rent, whether they could afford food. There's a lot of anxiety. Right now we're suffering under Biden inflation. Everybody's watching their income get blasted into atoms by his inflation prices, by rising fuel prices. Nobody can afford rent anymore. I mean, in an environment like that where there is so much anxiety, it is not at all surprising to see people saying cold, hard cash is something that's really important, where if you have that, then you can weather a lot of other storms. And if you don't have that, you can't. So not at all surprising to see that being something that people think is important. It does indicate a degree of anxiety when people turn away from what you might call higher level concerns, more abstract concerns. When they think about patriotism, religion, maybe even to a certain degree, having children. If you're a young poll respondent, you haven't started doing that yet. Some of those things are somewhat abstract notions to you. you. You have a sense that they are important and good, but maybe you haven't really experienced those things in your life. But money, everybody understands that. You either have it or you don't. So you do get a degree of cynicism, I think, when you have an economy and a sense of public trust that's been weakened as much as ours has. Now, it's not true, I think, that sliding uh, values like this is irreversible. All of these things could be turned around. And I think it's pretty important that we do it. But if we're going to, we're going to have to reverse a huge amount of cultural programming and indoctrination that has imparted these beliefs to people. You can't really expect to just argue an entire generation out of thinking that having children is a sin because the earth is dying from climate change. I mean, they've been told that every day of their lives in both obvious ways and quiet ways. We are learning now to our great sorrow after the pandemic that a lot of stuff was being plugged into kids' heads in schools without their parents' knowledge, quite specifically without their parents' knowledge. We have learned that kids were being told, don't tell your parents we're teaching you this. They're not qualified to judge our brilliant curriculum. So this is just between you and me. And that's where a lot of this indoctrination stuff happened. And the kids were told not to tell their parents about it. So you can't turn something like that around on a dime. You're going to have to start correcting generational programming and raising a new generation that has different attitudes. And that's why it's so important to control schools, control the curriculum, to take it away from these extremist lunatics that have turned schools into the disasters they are. You can't turn around any of these trends that are so depressing and atomizing. You can't really get people back to where they once again value patriotism unless their parents have more of a say in their education and unless they're taken away from the clutches of people that are very keenly interested in programming them to think otherwise. I guess the last thing you could say about this Wall Street Journal poll is that it's a good thing it's not worse than it is. Considering what people have been subjected to, these are not terribly bad numbers in light of that. I'm John Hayward sitting in for Alan today. We will be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. New research released to mark the International Day of Math reveals that math is the subject most American adults say they're afraid of, but is also the subject they most want their children to be good at. So to help them support their children in building confidence with numbers, a new, fun and engaging computer game called Teach Your Monster Number Skills has hit the market. Junaid Mabeen is a math expert from Number Skills, and he says building your child's confidence from an early age 
is vital. Getting kids confident with numbers from a very young age is so important to their long-term success in mathematics. And the reason I use teach your monster number skills with my own children is that it teaches them about numbers, about how creative and, and playful numbers can be. It's very fun and also educationally very powerful. You can download this great game today. Just search for Teach Your Monster Number Skills online. It's available on all desktop and mobile devices. Trust me, you won't regret it. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM SkillsBuild continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to scale 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jason Derulo. I love that music connects to people all over the country. But unfortunately, so does something else. Childhood hunger. 15 million kids struggle with hunger right here in America. And yet, every year, billions of pounds of surplus food in the U.S. go to waste instead of going to the children in need. Feeding America is working to change this. The Feeding America nationwide network of food banks rescues this surplus of food to help provide meals to families in virtually every community in the United States, including yours. But they just can't do this alone. Join me in the fight against hunger in America. For more information on what you can do to get involved, visit feedingamerica.org. That's feedingamerica.org. Together we can solve hunger. Together, we're feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. What is dedication? I am the father of a nine-year-old little girl and a six-year-old little boy. And I find fatherhood both relentlessly challenging and relentlessly rewarding. My daughter is biological and my son is adopted. I love them both so much. From the morning when you wake up to putting them to bed at night and every moment in between, it really is so special. And boy, is it exhausting. One thing that I fear about being a parent is the future for my children. I think a parent's job is to protect our children, but also prepare them for the world so they become good, kind human beings. But I'm also hopeful that the future holds a more inclusive and compassionate world for them. That's dedication. Find out more at fatherhood.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. A huge amount of money was made available to classrooms during the coronavirus pandemic, and you may not be surprised to learn that a great deal of it never made it to the classrooms. About $736 million of that funding was sluiced off and diverted into other projects, some of which are downright antithetical to education. So yet another story of how the government spends titanic sums and then the money vanishes and then they come back and tell you that they need more money. Here with us to talk about it is Patrick Hughes, president and founder of the National Opportunity Project. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me. I mean, this is not surprising to me. This is depressingly predictable, in, in my opinion. But some of the things that this money was diverted into, they spent millions of dollars in Oregon on an equity program called Moonshot for Equity, which is just more of this left-wing gobbledygook. Equity is supposed to be forcing equal outcomes on all people. So, you know, you, you put weights on the strong guy so he can't walk as fast. West Virginia spends a bunch of it on a competition to see how many people could get vaccinated, and they gave out prizes. I mean, this this is somewhat obscene to me that this money was supposed to shore up education at a moment when it was in crisis, and instead it just got poured off into the usual flapdoodle. Yeah, John, you, you sort of hit the nail on the head of what happened in certain circumstances. There was, you know, $5.5 billion allocated to private schools. And as you and I know, private schools is not just for the affluent. There are a lot of underprivileged kids, minority kids, kids who are disadvantaged in private schools. And so this you know, $5.5 billion was supposed to go and help during the coronavirus pandemic because there was so much learning loss during that time, mental health issues, things of that nature. And at the National Opportunity Project, I was following that and then commissioned the study to determine, you know, what happened to the $5.5 billion. And what we learned was $736 million, at least $736 million, uh, didn't make its way to private schools. And there's reasons for that, right? The money was very restricted. It had to be used for things like, uh, you know, COVID eradication or prevention like PP&E or ventilation or classrooms where the uh, extra classrooms where the public schools got much more leeway. And so what ended up happening it was hard to get the money to the private schools. And like you said, the, the money is now being spent otherwise. And it's being spent otherwise because there's a provision in the law that allows the private school funding to revert back to the discretion of the governors. So, for example, um, there's a lot of money that is left over from that that hasn't been allocated. And so that's why we did the report. And that's why we want to talk about this, because this is the age of parent empowerment. And if we can arm these parents with this report and with the knowledge that there's a lot of money still left out there, um, maybe they can go and try to figure out how to get that to their private schools, whether it's parents or advocates or people within the school system. So, for example, Ohio has $51 million to allocate that hasn't been allocated to private schools. Virginia has $68 million. Washington has $41 million. Here in Illinois, where I'm taking this call from, there was $46 million that was allocated to private schools. It wasn't going to go to those private schools until we FOIA'd and asked questions and other people within this sphere who are interested in this subject were also doing the same. And finally, our very Democratic Governor Pritzker decided to get that money out to 560 private schools in Illinois. So the point is, John, there's a lot of money still out there that hasn't been allocated and in, in various states and 27 states throughout the country. And if parents are armed with the report that we did at National Opportunity Project, 
and, and advocates are armed with that report, our hope is that they can figure out a way and be armed with the information to figure out a way to get some of that money to their private schools. This has been the problem with education for quite some time, arguably since the Department of Education was established, that we have a lot of money, an increasingly delirious sum of money, being spent on public education, but somehow it never quite gets where it's supposed to go, and that applies to government-supported programs for private schools as well. It started with high intentions, there are bold promises being made, and then along the way, every dollar gets nibbled and chewed away. It's like watching uh, balls being dropped into a pachinko machine. There's this apparatus designed to just siphon all this money off into to ideological crusades, into administrative overhead, and we get pennies on the dollar at best finally getting to our students. What's so wrong with demanding that zero dollars of this money should go to ideological crusades, that all of it should be spent on pure education? Oh, there's no question. You're absolutely right. It should be spent on pure education. Look, in COVID, the public policy decisions of our governments, both at the federal level and the state level, particularly as it related to education and what we did with young kids in school is some of the worst public policy decisions in the history of our country, certainly on education in the history of my lifetime. And so, and so what's happened is you have a massive learning loss. You have higher uh, levels of anxiety and, and, and mental problems and struggles. And there's now money out there that can be used for programming, for technology, for tutoring. Let's get it for those purposes so kids can learn better how to read and write and do math and do STEM than what you just identified are the things that it goes to. And obviously, when you look at the public-private divide, John, you know, as it relates to the public, the teachers' unions are very powerful political uh, operators, and and that's why um, it's so important that uh, we pay attention to the resources that are available for private schools who aren't in the public teacher uh, realm. And because there's so much money out there now, there's an opportunity for folks to go get that money and use it for the reasons that we've outlined here in this call. And that plus, I think, the performance of the school system during the pandemic, which was grievous and woeful, and the absolutely outrageous dereliction of duty from the teachers' unions, this should be the golden moment for school choice. There, there may never have been a better one in our lifetimes for the school choice movement, but that's going to require leadership. There's going to have to be organization. If it's just individual parents clamoring and demanding, they're going to get ripped apart by the media and it's never going to go anywhere. Yeah, no, I think the school choice movement has a real opportunity. I know that homeschooling really took off in the pandemic. I know that people moved their kids from public schools to private schools because more of the private schools were open. And because, you know, for the first time, parents were sort of really engaged in their children's education because they could see what was happening on Zoom. They could see how their kids were reacting, you know, in the household because they were home all the time. And they realized what the education they were getting really was and what it amounted to. And I think that's why you saw over those years in places like Loudoun County and so many other, so much movement at the level of the school boards because parents were you know, made aware of all of this. You know? and, and so th- this is a time of parent empowerment and, and arming private schools with money they were supposed to get already is very, very helpful for the overall pursuit of education for our private schools. It's helpful to people who are uh, in the school choice movement and believe, believe in school choice and believe that a private school can educate kids in, in, in a different and a lot of times better way and for a lot less money. And so having these resources that have already been allocated, already spent taxpayer dollars, getting those into the right hands is critical. And that's why there's an opportunity here because there could be anywhere between 700 and a billion dollars of money out there. And National Opportunity Projects, we're continuing to look for it. 
will continue to uh, ask for information and compile information from the state governments, from the governors, so that you know they know that they're being watched, and hopefully they'll do what Governor Pritzker did in Illinois and allocate this money the way it's supposed to be allocated. And you know the counterattack is going to be the same as always. They're going to say that every dollar that's put towards school choice, homeschooling, private schools, is a dollar being taken away from public education, and they're they're trying to choke our kids out of a good education that way. Yeah, they always say that, but that's just a, a statement to keep the teachers' unions in power. This, this does seem like a unique moment when people can see that that isn't true, and we'll have to see how it plays out from here. Patrick Hughes, president and founder of the National Opportunity Project, thank you for joining us today. I'm John Hayward, sitting in for Alan. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. One of the biggest challenges companies face today is employee retention. Following the pandemic and the great resignation, today's job hunters are looking for greater satisfaction in their work experience. If employees feel like their time is being wasted, they're more likely to leave. One frustration that employees mention is working with multiple disconnected HR and IT systems that slow down productivity. According to the open directory platform provider JumpCloud, one solution is IT unification. When HR and IT work together, two distinct processes become one consistent experience, which saves time and money and keeps employees happier. JumpCloud principal strategist Chase Doling. JumpCloud ensures that your HR and IT tools work together for seamless integrations and built-in automation capabilities. We offer pre-built integrations with the leading HRS solutions, which increase productivity across the organization, and this drastically improves the user experience. To learn more, visit jumpcloud.com. Spring is in the air, and now's the time to spring forward with a delicious breakfast from Burger King, an all-natural Simply Orange juice. Begin your day with a sausage, egg, and cheese with sandwich with sizzling sausage, fluffy eggs, and melted American cheese on a toasted croissant. Or a bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit on a warm buttermilk biscuit. And make it a meal. All Burger King breakfast sandwiches go great with crispy hash browns. And pair perfectly with a Simply Orange juice with no added sugar. Never sweetened, never concentrated, and never frozen. Simply Orange goes perfectly with breakfast at Burger King and is rich in vitamin C. And now through March 31st on the BK app, Royal Perks members get a free single core sandwich with any Simply Orange juice purchase. Use code BREAKFAST to redeem. Get a jump on spring with breakfast at Burger King. Because you rule at participating U.S. Burger King restaurants. Royal Perks account required. Restrictions apply. See offer terms for details. Not valid on delivery orders. Sponsored by Coca-Cola. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. 
No word in the English language is less convincing than probably. Are you sure we should get matching tattoos on our first date? Sure. Um, we'll probably stay together. Probably? <laughs> It's been 23 minutes since I ate. I can probably swim. Uh, you should wait 30 minutes. Mm, okay, now tell me what to do. Cannonball! Cramp! Oh, I have a cramp. I can probably hit the green from here. Probably. Can I get a mulligan? Ready to go? Hey, are you sure you're okay to drive? Yeah, I'm pretty sober. Yeah, I'm probably okay. Probably okay isn't okay, especially when it comes to drinking and driving. If you're drinking, call a cab, a car, or a friend. Buzz driving is drunk driving. A message brought to you by NHTSA and the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny. When I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. Helen Nathan Show. I'm your guest host today, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. Joe Biden's border crisis is still very much a hot issue, even though it receives minimal media coverage for obvious reasons. It'd be very embarrassing to the administration if they did cover it. An estimated six million people have crossed the border illegally during the Biden administration, and that has caused a number of problems along the border, including a human rights crisis from people that are being abused and mistreated as they try to gain entry. It's, it's a thoroughly horrifying situation, and rarely is it discussed how much this open borders crisis is hurting legal immigrants and people that are legitimately trying to apply for asylum as they try to get into the United States. Here with us to talk about it is one such person, Maria Bello, who fled Venezuela at the age of 17 to escape the socialist tyranny there and became a legal immigrant to the United States. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Thank you for inviting me. What you don't hear a lot in the discussion of the border crisis is how the chaos at the border is making it difficult to get the people who need to be here in here, the people who go through the process, do everything right, and the people who are legitimately looking for asylum from regimes that are aggressively trying to kill them. Those people's opinions are not solicited, but I do sense there's a sea change afoot, and that a lot of people who have legally immigrated are increasingly turning against the border crisis and demanding border security. Right. One of the things is people think that because we're Hispanic and we come to this country, we are we agree with what's happening on the southern border. We don't agree with what's happening, not just because we're letting more than six million illegal immigrants coming into our country, but just because terrorism. We don't know anything about these, these people. We don't know 
their backgrounds, we don't know if they have a criminal record. So we're putting Americans in danger. I was 17 when I came to this country, and it was because of all the situation happening in my country. But I came here as a legal immigrant. I came here as a U.S. citizen. And I've known people who have done that. I have friends that are legal immigrants. They've often spoken of how the process can be difficult and time consuming. There's a lot of bureaucracy that one has to go through. And and we could certainly stand to streamline some of those processes. But then having done that, they turn around and just watch people stampede across the border. And that just does not sit well with someone who did it right and made the effort to follow the laws. And there's a lot of money that you have to spend um, by becoming a legal immigrant. But that's the right way to do it. Um, I was 17 when I came here. Um, I came as an American, uh, as I said before, not just like every other um, elected is trying to say that I came here with a student visa, I came here with a tourist visa, I stay legally. No, I came here as an American citizen. I've been an American citizen for 10 years, and I'm so proud of living in this country. And it's very difficult to process immigration because, by definition, you're working with other countries with their legal systems and their governments, some of which, as in the case of the one you, you fled, are malevolent and hostile and difficult to work with. And it's it's hard to make that effort at the same time as you just have people coming across in titanic numbers. And the system is overstressed with dealing those people. The Border Patrol Customs will tell you that they are working 28 hours a day trying to stay on top of the illegal situation, which doesn't leave a lot of resources to process legal immigration and asylum requests. And that includes 1.3 million gotaways who escaped the Border Patrol. And, and that might not be the right count. That might be 20, 20% even more. So just imagine how many illegal immigrants we have in our country that we have, we have no idea where they are or, or where they're coming from. And it does create a secondary problem because with that number of people here, you have social services strained to the brink, law enforcement in areas where they they settle is having difficulty keeping on top of it. It's a lot of pressure being put on systems that were designed to help people that come here legally and they're being vetted, that that are being carefully studied, that are, are being processed to make sure they don't have health issues, criminal records. All of that is very time consuming. And a certain number of those people are supposed to then be allowed into the country. And instead, you just have waves of people who we don't know who they are. It's very difficult to keep up with that. Right. And Americans, as an American, I'm pro-immigration, but I am pro-legal immigration because I'm an immigrant myself. And that that's a difficult conversation to have when you see people in this country are well aware that they have this massive problem with the legals at the open border. So then you say, how about legal immigration? Let's have some more of that. And you get some hostility mm-hmm. from people that otherwise would be fine with it. But they, they look at how many illegals are coming across the border and they say, we're full. You know, we're already stressed to the brink. So how can we have more legal immigrants on top of that? And the worst part of all, all of this is that all of these people coming to our country legally, well, they will keep voting for the left. They will keep voting for all of these laws. And, and America, we, we need more of a law in, in, in immigration. What's happening at the southern border? I was living there for about two months, and I saw how many people who come through a border. It is insane. The United States has fallen into the hands of those people who destroyed my country. And, you know, the last couple of elections would suggest that particularly in the case of immigrants from Central and South America, a lot of those people are turning against that line of thinking, that they want border security, that they're aware of of the costs being imposed. They feel their own safety is being jeopardized. They resent being told they're supposed to feel sympathetic to people that broke the law when they didn't. So it seems like that's a real and growing uh, movement among people that are immigrating from that region of the world. Right. And, you know, I work with CCA, which is Community Concerned Communities. It's because 
we don't, I don't want the same thing that happened in my country to happen here. We're working to promote policies that will help the black and brown American Americans and secure borders. And there's a lot of work to be done to help people like that. A lot of times they come here in, in poverty. If they're fleeing, if they're seeking asylum, they're coming from very difficult situations, sometimes fleeing with, with only what they could carry. And when those resources are stressed to the breaking point with general border crossers, there just aren't enough people to help, and there should be. And there are thousands and thousands of people who will spend months, days, walking through a country to another. There are thousands of Venezuelans that will walk from Venezuela to Colombia, and then from Colombia they will come into Mexico, and then from Mexico they will come into our country. They will spend weeks walking just to come to the land of freedom. But how many people can we take? Well, and, and when they, they make that journey, which is often quite perilous, then they fall prey to criminal gangs, to coyotes, the, the organized crime rings that, that profit off of people making migration. And upon arriving at the border, which is now like, you know, the entrance to Disneyland at opening, you know, so many people piled up there. We just had this crisis, this horrible catastrophe a little while ago about a detention center in Mexico catching fire and a lot of people getting killed. Yeah. There's a human rights crisis being created by mass migration that can only be solved by closing the border and relieving the pressure. It is dangerous. We have seen how many kids have died crossing the southern border, crossing from Mexico to the United States. We have seen how many people have, how many women have gotten raped by the coyotes. And nobody's talking about this. Nobody's talking about how difficult, how dangerous it is to go from Mexico to the United States. And I think once people have have even reached Mexico, that's already a long journey for people coming from Central America. So they they may feel like they have to do whatever it takes to get that last stretch of the way, and they're increasingly desperate. And it seems like these criminals are just poised to profit off of that. Right. No, I absolutely agree. Now, there are some people who say that a generous immigration and refugee policy can have one downside, even if illegal immigration is totally under control, and that's that the people that might change a country like Venezuela are instead leaving, you know, that they, instead of staying behind and fighting to try to improve that place and overthrow tyranny, they escape, which, you know, understandable, but that means there right. is less pressure for change in the country that the refugees are coming from. What would you say to that? Of course. I mean, one of the things that I always tell people is that we don't have the Second Amendment in Venezuela. You know, how many people in the United States have guns in their house? You know, like if, if we see all of, if we see the government trying to come after us, they can because we can defend ourselves. The problem with Venezuela, Venezuela is that Venezuelans cannot defend themselves. We don't have the right to the Second Amendment. If we had the right to the Second Amendment, believe me, we wouldn't have the government that we have right now. We don't, ha we don't have freedom of speech. We don't have the right to, to, to have guns in our households. We don't have the right to defend ourselves from violence, from, from the government. We don't have that. If we had that, believe me, we will never have that government. That's an interesting perspective because here in the United States, when we have our periodic arguments over gun control, we're having another one right now, uh, people who mm -hmm. say that are, are usually denounced. Like the, the gun control advocates will say that's silly. Uh, you can't use guns to hold back tyranny. The army could kill you in 10 seconds flat. So, I mean, there's, there's no reason to be armed to hold tyrants back. That's just an antique notion. And it sounds like, you know, if you've maybe come from Venezuela, you know that's not the case at all. That's a very real consideration. Yeah. No, I mean, we saw what happened in Nashville. If we had our teachers, we have professors carry guns, do you really think that would have happened? No, that would have never happened. We have to, to teach our, we have to teach our population that guns are not bad. 
what is bad is the type of people that carry them. Like, who, who who's the one that shoot all of these kids? It was some a transgender. It was a lefty. It was someone that wanted to destroy these kids. Wanted someone that wanted to destroy our nations. Left the left wants to destroy our nation, and they're the ones hurting our kids. They're the ones hurting our families. So if we had access in schools to have more technology, have professors carry guns, believe me, this will have never happened. Well, and it sounds like a lot of the people here in the United States who are of the left, as you say, they have never had the pleasure of experiencing applied leftism as you have, and, and you, your family is willing to risk everything to get away from it. But people here just don't understand that that's what socialism becomes. They still think it's a positive idea. They, they don't have direct experience with outright tyranny. Maria Bello, a refugee from Venezuela who is now here in the United States as a legal immigrant, thank you very much for joining us. I'm John Hayward, sitting in for Alan today. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. The pandemic is just one factor that forced companies to rethink the way they conduct business. In addition to remote employees, companies are uploading more data to the cloud and workers are using a wide variety of apps and devices. As a result, businesses are more susceptible to security breaches than ever before. For 10 years, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud has helped businesses improve security and minimize vulnerability. Security continues to be a top concern for businesses. According to JumpCloud Vice President Eric Brown, organizations need to reconsider their approach. Identity is the new center of IT and the foundation around which all IT infrastructure should be built. That's where we at JumpCloud come in. We help companies and people make work happen with secure, frictionless access to the apps and data they need with an open directory platform designed for identity transformation. To learn how JumpCloud can help your business, visit JumpCloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you wanna support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. 
When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year, remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who got got his first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries? I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time, ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I am John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in as your guest host today. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. We were just talking a moment ago with Maria Bello, whose family fled the Venezuelan tyranny when she was 17 and came to the United States. And she made a very interesting observation that the Venezuelan people were thoroughly disarmed. And because they didn't have guns, their regime can do whatever it wants to to them. And if they had a Second Amendment and they were armed, well, then they wouldn't be quite so easy for the dictator to push around. And that kind of thinking is frequently dismissed when it comes up here in the United States. If you bring up that topic, if you say the Second Amendment was written in order to keep tyranny at bay and to prevent an overweening government from uh, from taking over and abusing the people, uh, people on the left, people who are gun control advocates will laugh. And they will say, and I'm not really paraphrasing here because this is almost literally what they'll say, uh, you people have no chance against the U.S. military. And if you think your your silly little closet full of guns is going to fight off the all-powerful might of the U.S. government, uh, you're crazy because they'll just kill you. They'll bomb you. They'll, they'll drop cruise missiles on you. They'll nuke you. And, and then you'll be dead. This is pretty much literally what the current sitting president of the United States said. 
Joe Biden has said on several occasions that it's foolish to talk about resisting tyranny with the Second Amendment because, you know, the U.S. military would just wipe you out. And there are people in his party who who get very excited at that. This is uh, on people on the left for some of them, for your your Twitter randos and for even some Democratic Party politicians. This is something that gets them very excited. They, they get almost aroused when they start having this fantasy and they say, oh, we're going to come for your guns. You better believe we're going to come for your guns. And when we do, we really hope you fight back because you'll die. Our, our military will just slaughter you and, and you'll be dead. Now, for one thing, it's revolting to see people getting, you know, almost brought to the point of, of orgasmic delight by visions of their fellow Americans being gunned down by the military. So get that out of the way right away. But, uh, you know, on a practical matter, the U.S. military is indeed very impressive and has some fantastic capabilities. But the idea that a modern military, any modern military, is just going to absolutely steamroll any kind of an insurgency, uh, how can anybody still believe that. Uh, the Taliban just last week uh, published new photos of all the equipment Joe Biden gave them. The Taliban terrorists are sitting on millions of dollars in American military hardware that was abandoned when Joe Biden ran away from Afghanistan in this absolute debacle early on in his administration. And he left all these weapons and all these helicopters and, and jeeps behind him. Taliban's driving around in them, having photos of themselves, holding parades with them and showing off their inventory. So how anybody, I, I think you're getting to the point of being maybe not quite right in the head if you can look at recent history and conclude that there is no way that a, an insurgency arm with small arms can possibly defeat a modern army. I mean, it just happened. and It happens all the time. So, so let's get that out of the way. But more to the point, we would really hope that nobody ever gets into a shooting war in some kind of a civil war in the United States. We'd, we'd all like to avoid that very much, I'm sure. But this business of being armed to oppose tyranny is very important long before a single shot is fired. And in fact, if the principle is working right, nobody ever pulls a gun out. The fact that the populace is armed, that they have their, their weapons and that some of them are effective weapons, that they can have assault rifles, whatever you want to call them, AR-15s, you know, that they, they have access to guns like this. This is a way of defining citizenship and both its rights and its responsibilities. The Second Amendment makes you a sovereign citizen. The First Amendment gives you the right to complain and speak and to organize. The Second Amendment is all about taking your own self-defense, your sovereignty, into your own hands. And when a nation respects the rights of its citizens to keep and bear arms, that relationship is very different than it is in a country where the citizens are not so trusted. The countries that don't trust their citizens to be armed have a nasty tendency of sliding into authoritarianism very quickly and very su very suddenly uh, without warning because they don't think of their citizens as respected sovereign individuals. They think of them as children. The, the citizens belong to the political class. They're like children they take care of, and they get pushed around in ways that would not be thinkable in a country that has a more robust understanding of individual rights, of the right to keep and bear arms and so on. But having an armed populace does one other thing, too. It changes the calculations that are, that are undertaken by tyrants, by criminals, by murderers. And that's something that I think is front and center after this terrible shooting that we had in Nashville. The, the shooter had a manifesto, and we're not being allowed to see it. The authorities, the powers that be, have decided that we can't see her manifesto, which means I think we can all guess what it says. They'd let us see it if it didn't say certain things. So they're going to try to keep this under wraps for as long as possible. But rumor has it from sources who have seen it that one of the things in her manifesto was a comment that she had scouted out several locations for her terrorist attack, and she picked the school that she did. She settled on that, that Christian school as her target because it was a soft target, because it was unarmed. 
She knew she could get in there and she'd be the only one with a gun. So she factored that into her thinking. And so was the case with other mass shooters, the Pulse nightclub shooter, Omar Mateen, uh, back in Orlando. He cased out a bunch of other places he wanted to shoot up. He didn't want to shoot up the Pulse nightclub. That was not the top of his list. There was a lot of disinformation about that case when it was all first happening. And one of them is that he aggressively hunted down a gay nightclub and targeted that. No, he didn't. He went to a bunch of other places first, and he was much more excited about shooting up Disney World. He was going to go shoot up a, a part of Disney World. That was his favorite target. But he didn't because there was armed security. He kept looking until he found a soft target, someplace he could go in and be the only guy with a gun and do what he wanted to do. And of course, he then proceeded to do this horrible thing. And we had the Pulse nightclub shooting. That criminals do this all the time. Criminals are not likely to attack places that they know there's going to be armed resistance. Why would they do that? They're going to go for places that they know are not going to fight back, that don't have a gun that will be much easier targets for them to undertake. And when the criminal element thinks that much of the public is armed because they have the Second Amendment, then they're less likely to be criminal overall because they don't know. They look at a whole block of houses and they say, how many of these people have guns? Maybe they all do. So maybe I'm going to rethink my life choices before I go in there and get killed fighting people that are armed. That's one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of stick-up jobs being held at gun stores. But every now and again, you do. There was a video a couple of weeks ago about some guys that did decide to rob a gun store, and it went about the way you would think it would. So, I mean, the, the criminal element is not, as a general rule of thumb, completely foolish or insane. They make calculations. And one of the calculations made by people who are going to commit violence violent crimes is the probability that their target will be able to resist. And in the modern world, that means having a gun. There is nothing else that's going to equalize the business between you and an attacker more effectively than having a gun, especially if you are somebody, if you're a woman, if you have physical disabilities, you're, you're going to be preyed upon by multiple people. You know, you're, you're walking down the street and a whole gang of people comes at you. Uh, if you don't have a gun, you'd, you'd better be uh, extremely adept at hand-to-hand -hand combat if you think you're, you're going to like your odds against five or six guys that want to beat the heck out of you. Guns are the equalizer. Guns are what change the calculation of tyranny and criminalism. And uh, in, in some extent, if the population is armed and everybody knows the population is armed because you have robust gun rights, then maybe you have a lot of people who might be violent deciding not to be because they look around and they don't see any soft targets at all. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. It's been a pleasure as always. Thank you very much for joining us on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show. The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.